north of the 54th. I'm Garrett Brown. And I'm Preston Brown. We're pretty happy to have Rob Bloom with us again. Well, it was fun and glad to be back and to be here and visit with you guys. So, Rob, last time you were telling us about the geography and the geology of the peace country. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Uh, the geography here? So I did some work lots of times up in Fairview. I knew Bob Salmon there, and he started Trias Concrete. So, I mean, I was handling his product lots. And, he, you know, Bob, he had some health issues and he ended up in the hospital. And I go there and I had my son with me. And he was nine or 10, Sean, our son. We went to his room and sat and talked. And so he told me some things. So one day, <laughs> he said there's a big piece of quartz went up the conveyor belt to the crusher that jammed, you know, and there's the rollers under it. And then there's sometimes arms, well, it's jammed there and the rocks and everything are falling off and it's causing a mess. So he shut it all down and climbs up there and he throws it off. He says, there was a gold nugget in there. He says, about the size of your thumbnail. Everybody figured, yeah, that's got to be gold. Eh? <laughs> so one of the guys there running the loader says, well, to Bob, he says, well, can I have it? He says, well, sure, you can have it. He says, I don't care. He says, what are you going to get for it? And this is exact words. What are you going to get for it? A steak tonight for supper, you know? <laughs> okay. So anyway, the geologist, <clears throat> in his infinite wisdom, wherever they had there, said, well, all the gravel in the Grimshaw gravels deposit came from the Hudson Bay. Was carried, he said it was carried there by glaciers during the ice ages. And I thought, uh huh, and you believe that because that's not where it came from. See, it came from the west, from the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And as I got to understand how things were, like remove the Peace River, we've all drove over lots of times, and fill that full of ice, three, four hundred feet thick a glacier. Now it starts to melt. Well, it's going to erode a river base through it, okay? Yep. Well, glaciers like a giant conveyor belt. It, it goes and it drops dirt as it melts. It goes, it drops, it goes. The Grimshaw gravels. And I really like this place because I poured a lot of concrete. Made from it. In fact, the walls of my shop are made from this concrete with the panels. I had to get them hauled in special. And I didn't tell them why. Because it's... The gravel has gold in it, see. <laughs> Aside from the fact a truckload of that fell on me and broke my leg when I was 18, it's like, <laughs> but anyway, here's the story. The Grimshaw gravels averaged between 25 and 35 feet deep, okay? 25 miles wide and 55 miles north and south. If you take out your calculator, there are 10 cubic miles of gravel. Yeah, it's a lot of gravel. And when a glacier recedes, it drops riders, like big rocks, mm -hmm. okay? Where it came from, not where it was going to. So going west through Fairview, when old Bob Reynolds was alive, he was the mayor, and he went around all around Fairview, and he'd pick up these big granite boulders, uh, like the table here is... Uh, well, anyway, he'd get them like three feet by four feet, and he'd take two backhoes and he'd have them come together he'd pick them up the two buckets and back a trailer under it and sit them in there and then take them and he put them all around his house and i poured his floor and his shop reynolds plumbing and he was the mayor and i mean he told me how he did it you know how he moved all those rocks through. so salmon's on up 
build this gravel pit. <laughs> so I got to know them quite well. And Rick is there and he's running the gravel pit and his brother Tom, was, you know, Bob passed away, but brother Tom runs the concrete end of it. And Rick does the gravel end of it. And so I says to Rick, uh, you know, there's gold in your gravel, eh? Nah, I says, will you ever take the bottom of your wash pile apart and clean it out? Like once in a while, he says, you know, heavy that would be. <laughs> I says, yeah, that's the best part. <laughs> he says, no, I'm not doing that. Okay. I says, well, you know where your wash plant is? That four-inch hose that comes out of there, you're pumping water, you're running all the gravel that they ever take out of there, it's washed. This is the gold dust that's in your gravel is in that wash out area. Oh, he says, did you think so? I says, yeah. So I go there and I take my truck. And I say, I want you to sell me a truckload of sand. He says, okay. He says, where from? I says, right underneath your wash plant. <laughs> the sand all over. You can see all the sparkles in it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so okay so he takes the bobcat smaller not the great big loader and he gives me two scoops there and i put it in the truck i go home and i built a little gold sluice on the wood i actually did this all this stuff i'm not making this up and i take the garden hose i'm in my shop this dark nobody knows what i'm doing and i put a shovelful there and i wash it all down and i thought shoot you know there isn't any well it was made out of plywood i just nailed sticks on it it's very cheap and humble you know i don't know what i'm doing but in the morning, I go, and what had happened is on the side of my gold sluice, the nails weren't real solid. So there was a little tiny crack, you know, from the wood. And the water had been dripping out there. And there was a fan of nice yellow sand on the top of the floor. And I swept it all up. And I, I learned that it's actually really cold. And I thought, okay, guys. If you could get all the gold out of the Grimshaw gravels, it would probably make a block of gold the size of 214 place. Because you got 10 cubic miles of gravel. And I was like, yeah, but who's going to dig up their farm and communities and everything? So talking about money in the bank, I want you to think about something. In the oil industry here now, we do lots of uh, hydraulic drilling, okay? They want to expose a line or something they just come along and you know hydrovac yep. so if the stuff is only 35 feet deep max what do you think about it say like a mosquito we just poke it down okay now we're at 30 feet right and we go over 10 feet and we put another one and we take start flooding this one with water and we suck it out of that one we didn't dig anything we just pushed it in and we, we're going to get a whole bunch of dirty water out of it, right? That's what you're going to get. Yep. Plus gold dust. Someday, somebody will figure out how to do that. And they're going to be wealthy. It's going to happen. And I go back to them guys and I say, what's going on now? Because I, I go see a once in a while. Because one of the byproducts of their uh, gravel pit is they have black chert, okay? Now, black chert how do you explain it? It's jet black. Okay. That's the first thing. It's real black and you can nap it. Like you can make arrowheads or stuff out of it. Most of the arrowheads that are from the peace country, you know, come from black church. Believe it or not. Spear points, uh, scrapers, arrowheads. That's what they, it was. It was the thing that worked the best. And before I leave the gravel pit, I'm just going to tell you this. So I go and I become a member of uh, paleontology society here in Grand Prairie. 
they were going to build that museum, which I worked on too. But anyway, they had this anthropologist there, and he had all these examples in this case, and they're they're all black shirt. And then he makes a statement. He says, "We never found the quarry yet where they got all the black shirt from." And that really, in all your education, you can't figure that out. It's in the rivers. It's not in a quarry. So let's say we're all sitting around a campfire 500 years ago and we move a rock up against the fire or we build the fire beside the rock. And when we heat that rock, it expands and breaks off in chunks. Eh? And they're not thick. Like if you camp along rivers and you put rocks out of the riverbed against it and build a fire on them, usually in the middle of the night, they go bang, they break. Yeah. Because there's yeah. moisture in those rocks, eh? And I thought, you know, can't you see that that rock came out of the gravel? So the Peace River system is full of black chert in the gravel beds of the river, you know, small pieces. But in that gravel pit, there's some big pieces. And I wanted to get some to carve them. So I keep going back and saying, you find any big pieces of black chert yet? You know, no, no, we haven't found any. But anyway, so I says to Rick Salmon, I says, Rick, you've been uh, running this... Uh, <laughs> Environment Canada required, instead of them just pumping water out of the bottom of the gravel pit, putting through the wash plant right back into the pond, that they had to build a pond out of clay with four foot bottom and then sides. So think of an elevated dugout. All right. Here's the rules. Gold does not go through clay or bedrock. So now you've made a pond with a clay bottom. And you're putting your washings out of your gravel into that. So I says to Rick Sam, so Rick, what did you do with where you washed the gravel into for 20 years? Because, uh, you know, I'd be interested in buying some of that sand. And, you know, buy a truckload or 20 or 30 truckloads. <laughs> <laughs> he says, well, I buried it. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so I says, my next question, I said, well, what are you doing with all the silt that's in your brand new elevated duck pond that you built? He says, well, once a year we clean it up. He says, so what are you doing with that sand? He says, well, we pile it up in the yard, uh, the shop there, and people want to put it under their floors. We sell it to them. He still won't believe me there's gold in it. And it's like, well, I can't hold you guys. <laughs> It's like the people that are doing this, you know, they're building the garage or something on their house and they get this silty gravelly. It's got little tiny bits of rocks and stuff in it. You know, it's 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 easy to work with. Yeah. But it has gold dust in it, you guys. <laughs> it's like, come on. And you know, you can't convince people. And it's like, fine. Like I can't help you. So I'm gonna show you something else about you know, so I started really becoming a student of the land here or what's going on so before i leave gold I'll, I'll teach you something you go to taylor the world gold panning championships it's a good sign they do this every year a bunch of old guys go down there and they and the, there's very, not too much nuggets there you know it's mostly dust so it, it takes some skill to pan it okay does that make sense yeah, yeah. but during the depression people were going along there and they were making better than wages just panning gold so i have a, this employee that worked for me and it was a sunday and those guys he was a roofer before he came to work for me and they were broke eh? they had no money they're up there at fort st john and so they decided to 
go down to Taylor and see if we can find some gold. So Bruce says, he says, we shovel. We just went up around the corner from the bridge there. Kind of out of sight. He says, we shoveled gravel all day. And they actually found six little gold nuggets the size of matches. And I thought, yeah, but every shovel full of the gravel you're throwing out was gold dusted a little bit. You're throwing it away. So he says, that night they took it to the bar and they go to the bar and says, what do you give us for this? And he says, well, I don't know, I'll give you a bottle of the cheap stuff or whatever. So for all day shoving gravel, they got a couple of drinks. Now, they hold the world gold panning championships there, right? There's a sign right in Taylor. My wife's family lived there. I, always, I tell them, guys, oh, you guys are looking in the wrong place. You don't understand the hydrology of a river. You don't understand about gold. Gold floats. Gold dust floats in water. It's carried along. So I thought to myself, well, I don't have to pick up a gold pan or a shovel. I can show you where the gold is. They don't believe me. It's like, okay, take out a map of northern Alberta. You follow the Peace River from Taylor and you watch and you'll see it makes a big S turn. And there's what's called many islands there. And under many islands is gold. Has to be because the current changes velocity and the gold drops. And I look at that and I don't care anymore. I just wanted to find it. So I found actual gold in the gravel pile i know where there's gold in the river and i'm sitting here like still working for a living you know and it's like but it's okay it's fine well, i'm going to tell you one more thing about gold another guy that i've met along the way roy mccarty roy mccarty's in spirit river and i was telling roy i said you know roy i was retired like you this i had nothing to do <laughs> i said in the spring i'd go up the alaska highway and i said i'd go to every culvert under the road and I clean the culvert out and I pan it because the bottom of the culvert is like a gold stone. Okay. And I says, now I would just take them out and I'd put a kilometer such and such. This one is gold bearing and this one's gold bearing. This one has nothing, whatever. I said, you could just go every year after that. Just go to the right culverts. Hmm. Now listen to his story. He says, yeah. He says, I bought a Winnebago there years ago when my kids were small and we went up to Alaska. He says, so my son, Darren, and I know Darren. I work with him. <laughs> he says, yeah, he come out of the culvert with a gold nugget. He says, that's about a half inch around. So I says to him, I says, to, <laughs> I says, do you know which creek that was or what mileage it was? <laughs> he says, no. I thought, Roy, <laughs> surely you would understand that if there was a gold nugget in the culvert, that upstream from there, there's gold in the hills. Yeah? <laughs> he says I don't even know where it was uh, just says my kid come out he's got a keepsake so that's things happen okay so I became interested in glaciers and it's just I don't know I don't obsess about it but I decided I wanted to learn about where the glaciers went so our son Sean had in junior high they had to have a project, you know, a science project, okay? So I thought, what the heck? I got a camcorder, and I said, okay, I'm going to help you because, you know, he, you know, kids are a science project, you know. <laughs> so I said, okay, we'll go have some fun. I said, it'll be fun. So, and why I had him there is I took him to just in the county of Grand Prairie, all right? 
which goes all the way to the BC border. Mm -hmm. I says, I'm going to take you to the big rocks that I've seen when I've been out hunting or driving or working or whatever. So we did about 10 or 12 of them. And why I would do that is I'd have them go stand beside the rock. And that gives you a definition of how big it is because it's always the same person. So anyway, then we took the county map and we, you know, we rode down the land, legal land quarters. I had the map with me. I said, okay, this is where we are right here. And this is a science project. I said, okay, all the green rocks have green pins. All the gray rocks have white pins or white rocks or black or whatever. And brown and red and green, all the different colors. I says, now, when I put it on a board and we took the same color of string as the pigs and join them together, all right? And they all converge same place as the highway goes between Grand Prairie and Dawson Creek. So the glacier came out of there and fanned out over the county of Grand Prairie. And it doesn't mean anything other than that there are places that the glacier didn't touch, okay? Top of Saskatoon Mountain, if you go to the west side of Saskatoon Mountain, you can see that it was like an island in a giant glacier at one time. And if you go straight west from Grand Prairie, after Wembley, where the elk always hung around that guy has the field with the elk in it there. When they cut the new highway through, they cut through, there's lots of river rock this big that was carried by the, you know, like it's all in the fields. There's, there's rocks like everywhere. And they're not big rocks, they're little rocks. But the, the big rocks that I was showing Sean are riders. They rode on top of the glaciers. Does that make sense? Yeah. The glacier recedes, they just plop. So if you go to the west of the county of Grand Prairie, you have all these green rocks. And there's some big gray ones there. And there's a couple of rocks that I know about. They, they got to be 10, 12 feet in each dimension, you know. And there was one down on my place. And you can map how it's easy to, it's actually quite easy to do. The, how they followed. So then I was doing the job where the new uh, swimming pool is in Grand Prairie. And they had to make the cut because I was, you know, like into the dirt. And it was straight like a cliff, but it's all soil, silty soil. And you could see layers and layers and layers and layers of about three sixteenths of an inch to eighth of an inch. It's like the lake would come up, the lake would go down, you know, in the summer. Go up, with melt, go down. And Bear Creek that runs through Grand Prairie is what drained Bear Lake. But Bear Lake used to go right over top of Grand Prairie. Yeah. That's why it's so flat around Grand Prairie. Because it's the bottom of a lake bed. That's right. Yeah. And Bear Lake's so shallow. Yeah. And if you go east to the Cleskin Hills, now, it's just funny how you meet people. But anyway, I did some work for Cliff Innes, and Cliff owned the Cleskin Hills. He had uh, 13 quarters of land up there. Listen to his words. He said, yeah, I got four quarters of land up there to have gravel on. I said, yeah, that's glacier gravel. That was carried from the west. And when it come up against... The Cleskin Hills, it stopped and went around it. If you go on the north side of the Cleskin Hill, there's rocks all over in those pastures. And they're about two, three feet in diameter. And then on the south side, elevation rock. Do you know what I mean by elevation rock? You're coming to the Cleskin Hills. It's right by the highway. It's painted white with a rose on it. And it tells you the elevation. That's elevation rock. We see that rock was carried there by glaciers and stopped there. It's all smooth and rounded. It's about five feet by three and a half feet by five feet. And some old pioneer, he knew the elevation there somehow, and he wrote it on, you know, painted it on. 
But when they cut the north side of the highway through, they actually had to move it uphill. So it changed a couple of feet. So the elevation rock was moved from the south side of the freeway is the old highway, the north side is new, and they went right where it was. Yep. So anyway, I've learned all these things because of personal interest, not for personal gain. It's just like, eh, it's something I'm interested in, you know, landforms and stuff here. And the people that you meet along the way, and they always add to your knowledge of the land. You know what I mean? And I just, it's sad to me that in a sense we're losing this knowledge because if you talk to young guys say somebody's 14 and you say well the glacier went here and it's like so and it's like fair enough so i don't know how to run a computer either so <laughs> <laughs> see we're all living in our own element <laughs> <laughs> but i've when my wife before i married her i'm gonna show you some some things she had a place in fort st john and you know i went to see her we weren't married you know I guess I was courting her, I guess you call it that. And the next door neighbor was busy in his garage doing something there. And I was kind of bored because she was teaching school. So I'm waiting until she gets home to, you know, to see her type thing. So I go over there and say, what are you doing? <laughs> He's, you got to understand something. He had a cement mixer going in his garage. All right. Well, what I thought was a small cement mixer with a plastic tub on it. He says, well, I have a friend who's a pilot. And he's a geologist. He says, so what we do on the weekends is we fly to the bottom of glaciers in his helicopter. And we take samples. And I come here and test them for gold. Uh, oh, look at that, eh? So he showed me how it all works. I said, you found it? He says, no. <laughs> said, well, shoot. <laughs> so I'm standing there looking at this thing and thought, you know what? I've seen this before, only a lot bigger. It's like looking in the back of a concrete truck, transit mix. It's the same thing. So here's my theory. You take a whole bunch of gravel, you know, like five cubic meters of gravel, dump it in there, throw a bunch of water in it, swish it around and around and around, and you run it right down the thing, okay? But before you do, you weld some little bars on it like a gold sluice, huh? and I guarantee that the last stuff out of the truck, if there's any gold in that gravel, will be on your shoots, guarantee it. See, gold is the heaviest. So I said this to Bud that drove for Inland. Listen to his words. He said, I always tease these guys, you know, I say, because they're washing their trucks, and I've seen thousands of trucks wash. I always say, did you guys find any gold nuggets? And they always say, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, all right. So one day I says this to Bud, and he says, no. But when I was done washing out the truck, there was a wedding ring on the top of a little washout pile of gravel, like a gold ring. Now, somebody running a loader, somebody whatever, but the point is, it was the last thing out of the truck because it was the densest material in the truck. Does yeah. that make sense? Mm -hmm. It was on the washout pile. I thought, I've been vindicated. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> <laughs> so in the process of uh, all this, I worked in High Prairie. You see, I'm telling you stuff that I don't tell people, but what the heck, it doesn't matter. So anyway, I says my famous line to people, well, you find any gold nuggets there? <clears throat> and he says, no, but listen to this guy. He said, uh, in the winter, we had no work, so I took a job at running the cat. He says, I'm building the lease. And he was up at the Tower Road, north of Salt Prairie. So you go to 
east from High Prairie, you go over the end of the lake at Gruard, you come to Salt Prairie, and you go up to the tower. So disguised as a hunter, <laughs> I one fall I went up there. I was hunting actually, but anyway, uh, I got to know this for sure for myself. So this is his story. He said, I'm the cat and on the south side of the bank, he's building this lease, it's flat. And so there's always that black dirt stuff. So there was a shiny thing. And he was interested enough that he shut down the cat and walked over there to see what was shiny. He says it was a rock about three quarter inch around and it was pale blue. He says, and you held it up to the sun, you could see rainbows in it. Did you know the first diamond in Alberta was found at Entwistle? Did you know that? I did not, no. Did you know that De Beers from Africa, the diamond cartel, staked 22,000 acres around Peace River for diamond exploration? Did you know that? No, I didn't. And two shops down from my shop through the back alley, there was these, you see those mini bags, they're about four by four by five or whatever, they're vinyl bags that they put grain in or whatever. Well, they would bring those mini bags there like 30 or 40 at a time. And they'd take them in there with their little bobcat thing or whatever they had. And they had a sign that was no bigger than the screen on this thing that says De Beers, Canada. There was no great big sign or anything. It's just, and I thought, this bear's watching. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? They left. And they never found any diamond producing ground around Peace River. All right. But I worked with another guy <laughs> who I got to know quite well. And he was a rod buster. And he went up in the Northwest Territories and he was the foreman that tied all the steel in the diamond mine there. Yeah, that was his trade. He was a rod buster. And he wasn't just a peasant there. He run that all that job. Anyway, you have to have Kimberlite to have diamonds, right? Kimberlite is like a chimney coming up out of the center of the earth. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you, you know, heat and pressure, okay? Mm. So I started doing some homework on diamonds because, you know, I'm still interested in the ground here and I'm still poor and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, <laughs> let's do have the Ice Age traveling over top of a Kimberlite tube and grinding some of that to pieces. Why wouldn't there be a diamond dropped here or there in gravel? So I met another driver from... Slave Lake, this old guy, they had the gravel pit there and they give him a little trailer to live in it. He was the hound dog. He was the security guy. Plus he worked there. So at night he lived there. He said, one day I walked over to the scene on the gravel pile. He said, there was a shiny rock there. He says, I went over and picked it up. And he says, I kept it for quite a while. And finally he had a jealous look at it. He said, yeah, if this had been a little hotter and under a little more pressure, this would have been a diamond. He said, and it's broken half. He said, I looked all over the gravel pot for the other side. He said, never could find it. And I thought, well, I've had two guys sort of on the ground teach me stuff. And you know the guy that found the blue rock? I says to him, what'd you do with that thing? He says, oh, uh, I gave it to my kids. It was up on the fridge for a long time. He said, I don't know, somebody lost it. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so you meet these people and you ask these funny little questions, all right? And you think, does information, is information worth something to you? Knowledge. Is knowledge worth something? So I met this other superintendent named Kim. 
and ah, you know those poor guys they sit on those job shacks half their life and then they want to be home and they, you know they take a lot of pressure being a superintendent is a terrible job so anyway i says to kim let's talk to him i says where were you born because i'm always interested in where people come from and he said I says i was actually born in yukon now that's not normal most people <laughs> went to the north but they weren't born there yeah and then yeah. he's come back see down into and he was actually from regina so being naturally curious and poor and broke, I says to him, do you know anything about gold? <laughs> he says, yeah, I do. He says, the first job I had, I'm 14, I shoveled gravel into my uncle's gold sluice. Then he explained to me what they were doing. You know, when you walk into people's houses, they have that map that says welcome. It's got that kind of fibery stuff. like Yeah, like the coconut hair. So they take those things and they put them in a long trough end to end and they run the gravel over the water. They would stack them all up after a week and burn them. And then they would sift the ashes and pound them. I thought, well, that's really stupid. Why didn't you just take a club and pound them out and put them back? Why'd you burn them? But anyway, that's what they were doing. And then he stops and he says to me, it's funny you should ask me that. He says, you know, I've just been in, in Mongolia for two years. I've been building a gold sluice, you know, smelter for Kinross. Now, right away I'm interested because I own shares in Kinross. So who's Kinross? Well, Kinross was a company that was spun off from Canadian Pacific. When they went through southern BC and southern southwestern Alberta with the Canadian Pacific Railway, the railways needed coal, right, to run the coal steam engines at that time. So they developed those coal mines on there. You can drive, they're still there. Well, once they were done with the coal stage, they spun that off, and it's called Kinross. And I actually had bought some shares in Kinross. So I asked him, what was their gold like in their mine in Mongolia? And he says, it's very rich. Now, that doesn't do anything for you, right? But here comes the knowledge of the man on the ground that's worth real money he says but on the other side of that mountain range is b2 gold and it's even richer so knowing i don't know how to run a computer i phoned my trusty computer friend here that was my wife i said i want you to buy me <clears throat> ten thousand dollars worth of b2 gold <laughs> 20 cents a share so I watched BNN. You know, I'm just a guy. Uh, you know, I eat macaroni like anybody else. <laughs> okay. So I watched BNN. So one week it's 20 cents a share, and about a week later it's 22 cents. I thought, well, I could sell it. I'd make 10%. That's pretty good money, isn't it? You know, 10%? That's a thousand bucks on my 10,000. Well, I was watching it, and then it go back down to 10. And it go back to, no, 10, 20 cents and go up to 22. And I did it about six times. And I thought, Man, why didn't I just keep flipping it, you know? But I didn't. <laughs> but one day, there was a piece of land that I really wanted to buy. <laughs> so I cashed in my chips. I sold B2 Gold for $3.93 a share. Seven cents less than 20 times my money. Had I sold everything I owned, could borrow or steal, and put it on B2 Gold, I would have been retired quite a while ago. 
You see, knowledge of things is worth money. And now, you know, money is an interesting thing. Money gives you a lot of freedom, okay, to do what yeah. you want to do. I'll show it to you again. I'm working in Fort Nelson. This is this man's story. It's always about, I, I always go back to gold because I've always been interested in it because I've worked with gravel and concrete all my life. So this guy, he got a one-ton truck, just what you'd think of a one-ton, put a flat deck on it, and he mounted a portable, like, gold sluice on it. It didn't come off the truck. He bolted it on, then he had a trailer, and he put a bobcat on the trailer, right? Do you understand that? Spring comes. He just drives up the Alaska Highway to where the Klondike Gold Rush was. And this is what he does. He takes his little bobcat. He gets his Honda pump, just like we all think of it, two-inch pump, and he's got water pumping, and his gold sluice is going, and he sifts the gravel. Old tailings from when those guys were up there in 1890, and he's reworking their tailing piles. They're all along the rivers, okay? Yeah. And he yeah. just camps and does it. 3,000 ounces a year he recovers. Wow. Yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> you may have known Cam Jones that lived in Fort St. John. You remember Tim Jones? You should know him. Yeah. 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 Well, Cam is his brother, right? Listen to Cam's words. Cam became assistant to the deputy minister of mining and minerals or whatever in BC, right? I don't know how he got to that. I don't know. But he was, he come in that through the back door through the oil industry. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Cam tells me this thing. I'm always interested in what people are doing, you know, and their thoughts. So Cam says, yeah, he says, when all of this stuff was coming over his desk, it was a conflict of interest that he'd done anything with it. But after that job ended and he went back into uh, private work, you know, like not in government work, then he could do something. Go back to the Caribou Gold Rush. Go to Barkerville. There's a huge pile of tailings there from that gold rush. He bought it. The whole pile. I don't know what he paid for. It's none of my business. Because there's proven gold reserves in that pile of tailings, $40 per ton. When I talked to him, he said, yeah, I'm just putting together the equipment to go, go through it again. You see, people have everybody's a you know they have their thing but when you start talking to people about gold all of a sudden they change all right did you ever watch gold rush alaska the crazy program those guys are up there and sniveling and whining about everything you know <laughs> <clears throat> loaders going and you know no, it just, sounds well, like a reality tv show though that's what it is yeah so anyway as i got to know paul friesen paul this is the guy that owned Panda Oil Field right here in Grand Prairie. And he sold it out at the peak of the oil industry when it sort of was at a peak. He sold his business, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. <clears throat> and at 51, became quite wealthy. He marched over to me and says, I want to buy that section of land that you have. And I says to him, I said, well, Paul, it's not for sale. He said, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. He says, I want to buy it. Oh, who's this guy? Because I didn't know. <laughs> Well, the very next day, we're going to Costa Rica. We had 
booked a trip, you know, and we were taking our son, Sean, and we we're leaving because it was spring break all over America for universities and stuff. And we had a hard time booking a trip to Hawaii or anyways, there was no rooms. You couldn't even. So we got two days in this hotel, two days in that hotel and blah, 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 blah. We go to Costa Rica. So while we're there, I said to Paul, I said, oh, I'll think about it. So I go there, I talk to my wife. And she says, you know, you're going to be 78 when you get that land paid for, you know. So we made the decision to sell. And we come home. So I phoned him and I said, Paul, I'll sell you the land. This is my price. It's not negotiable. He says, I'll have a check at your lawyers tomorrow morning. Certified check. Four days later, he's farming my place. See, that's what happens when you deal with somebody who actually has some money. They can <laughs> they can live their dreams. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's yeah. not the money that's it's not the wealth or anything. It's like it gives them freedom to do what they want. So, you know, we became neighbors and he's a good farmer and he's looking after the place. And we talk once in a while, once a year or something, you know, compare notes. One day he says to me, You want to buy my gold mine? <laughs> this, is, this is Paul, I don't know anything about gold mining, but I said I'm interested in gold. It's what it represents as i've always been interested in you go 30 miles past where they film this reality gold rush alaska thing which is actually the yukon and that's where his claim is and they went up there and they would get there as soon as the river opened up and they could go they were making a million dollars profit a year mining gold this is an oil man okay he says do you want to buy this i had enough I'm never home. I wanted to be a farmer. You know, I wanted to raise grain. And my boys just want to come home and farm. They, they, you know, they were sick of it. They were sick of never being home. Those guys had girlfriends who were getting to be marriageable age and stuff, and they're gone for half the year up there slopping around in the muck, you know, in the gravel. You know, that he finally just decommissioned it. You know, he said the camp is there, the fuel tanks are full of fuel, and there's uh, the big track over there that's loose. The, the D8 cat, it's all there. It's just walk in and take over. And I said, uh, first of all, I don't know anything about it. Second of all, I don't have any money. You see, I've been exposed to this around me all the time. So when I sold him the land, <laughs> we sold my wife and I. He asked for a condition that if we sell any more of our land, that he has right of first refusal. That's fair, right? Because it took me 10 years to make this block of land. Okay. Yeah. I bought out neighbors, and, but I still own land that I know he'd like to have. And his two boys, they like cattle and I've fenced all my land and dugouts and stuff. And he's, you know, he said to me, Oh, I wish I'd have bought on this side of the red willow. And I thought, you know, Paul, you made a classical, really dumb move here. Why didn't you just come and say to me, you've got 12 quarters of land here and I've got money. So we're going to sit here and we're going to play some kind of a game and win you're happy with the amount of money that I can give you and I'd be happy with the amount of land that you can give me. I would have sold it all to him. But that's not what he wanted. He only wanted to buy the, he bought five quarters from me and I kept the others. See, now he wants the others. <laughs> but of all the gold that family mined up there, you know, they haven't spent one cent of it. You know, they take it to the, the foundry and Whitehorse and they melt it down and make those little gold bricks out of it. So I says to my wife, wife, when I've had enough playing cowboy, you will talk to Paul and you trade him gold bricks for that land. <laughs> Isn't that a good guy to know? 
it, yeah. he, he, he's not broke. He doesn't have to go and get a loan for it. It's like, well, let's see. I'll, I'll give you 12 gold bricks. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> But you see, there's a guy that's lived his dreams. And he used, you know, he came with his family to the Lacrete area. And his dad started farming, cleared land, and they were from a big family. And finally, economy being what it was, his dad had to sell a farm to feed his family, and they left. Paul was 17, he went and started working in the oil industry by 51. With the work ethic he'd learned on the farm, he built that business and retired out as a multimillionaire. From 17 to 51, and you think about that, that's 34 years. Then he goes and he, he gets some, you know, his dream was to have a farm. So he starts buying farmland. Now he's going up there and he decided to become a miner. And, you know, isn't people say this to me all the time? Well, everything you touch turns to me. No, it doesn't. But I get out of bed in the morning and go to work. And I try. Some days I really, really mess up bad. I, I really fail. And you don't do so good. And I've learned a few simple things about business and about work. But I've been exposed to people in this country. They weren't dreamers. They were builders of this country. And I, I've been able to rub shoulders with them. And, you know, I really honor their work ethic and their, they just could see tomorrow. Like, if you can look at what you think is going to happen next year, that's cool, eh? And you think, well, gee whiz, you know, well, if you can look 10 years out, that's good. But if you can look 20 years out and say, this is where this city's going to be, or this is where, this is what's going to happen, or whatever, tell me you won't be successful because you position yourself accordingly. So, talking about water, water's wealth. My wife is from Nevada. Down there, water is everything. Lake Mead behind the Hoover Dam now has only 40% of the water that would hold. The allocation of water under Lake Mead exceeds its rechargeability. Communities like uh, Las Vegas that get their water from there, that's a poor investment because in your lifetime, there'll be no water there. It's going to be like a ghost town. My wife's grandfather, see, this, this is about somebody you could see tomorrow. He was a dirt farmer, okay? He raised cabbages and lettuce and radishes and stuff. And he had migrate Mexican workers come and work for them to harvest and plant and stuff. That's what they were doing. They lived east of Las Vegas, about 35 miles at Overton. And there's the, what's called the muddy there. And really it, well, it can flood. But in the middle of summer, you could easily jump across it. You were right. Easy. Certainly Preston could. But anyway, this old guy knew that country down there. And west of Las Vegas, I don't know, I, I was there. It's a fair drive, 50 miles or something. Yeah. There's a community called Pahrump. Well, when Pahrump wasn't there, my wife's grandfather went to the government. And what he paid for it, I have no idea. Pennies per acre. But there was something there that he seen that nobody else saw. There was a spring there. And they didn't see the value of water. So he bought 
where Trump now stands, he owned it all. And he, in his diaries, he would list, this year I ran over with the disc this many rattlesnakes. You know, like we're talking about, like 180 the first year. And then you can see it's going down. And he planted that all to cotton. Yeah, it was hard, you know, he's buying fuel and he's, you know, he was selling cotton. My wife has sold cotton. Just you think about people working as slaves in the U.S. You think about raising cotton. My wife did that. She went out and hold cotton as a girl. And she said, you'd come in and you'd be all green, like the jolly green giant or pick tomatoes all day. And you'd literally be green. But the grandfather, her grandfather could see 50 years ahead. He passes away. Developers come. There was my wife's dad and his brother and two sisters, so four kids. And developers come and they wanted to build a town site there at Perum. Each of those kids got one and a half million dollars. Uh -huh. This old man was worried about how many rattlesnakes he ran over. You know, like, you can imagine going out there and working and all the rattlesnakes in there. You know, like it was desert, but he seen value where nobody else could see it. So my wife being from Nevada, I have learned something. So Joni, my stepdaughter, went to school with Katie Prescott, and they graduated together. And we went to graduation. So she says to me, would you like to go to the Prescott Ranch and stay overnight? I said, sure. I don't know these people, but the, you know, around here, that house and the barn and some cows, right? So we get to the Prescott Ranch after graduation. It's 54,000 acres. So the old guy says to me, you want to see the place? So we finished breakfast, you know, breaking in eggs, whatever. He owned the pickup, and we got back. It was supper time. And he says, well, there's one road. <laughs> Listen to his story. He says, I've nearly lost this place twice. The power company has offered me $12 million for the water rates under this ranch. He said, what would you do? I said, I'd sell. I says, you're here to raise cattle. But I said, you know, you told me yourself that you've nearly lost the place twice. I said, you have one daughter that doesn't want to be here. I says, maybe your wife would like not to have that stress because these were not young people. Yeah. I said, why don't you two take it a little easier? And I said, you can still raise cattle, but you don't have to worry anymore. You see, the principle of that was not only could they have the water rights, but they could run the power grid, the big power grid along that ranch for miles without having to interact with a whole bunch of other people. Because it's just you're only dealing with one customer, so to speak, yeah. to where, wherever they're taking that power to, Las Vegas or whatever. But this is what I learned talking to that old guy. And then I sat in his home and I read their local paper. And it talked about a water call. Do you know what a water call is? Yeah. They limit how water you can. This is what it is. Say your guy's grandfather and my grandfather all went to Idaho, but, but your guy's grandfather got there three years before me and you took out water rights onto your land. And I get there and I homestead a piece of land, but my water rights are three years behind you. Now we both got potatoes growing and it's dry and hot and you do a water call. Who gets the water? People with the first water rights. And my potatoes sit there and shrivel up and die. Is water valuable? 
And as I was down in that desert country and watching from the sidelines what was happening there, I made up my mind, everything that happens in the U.S. happens here. And I'm going to tell you something. In the future, water is going to be valuable. And people don't believe me. And I say, all right, little experiment for you. I want you to go to any corner store and buy a liter of water. You're going to pay whatever you're going to pay, $2.50, 3 bucks a quart. And you go out and you stand beside the pump and you look at the price of gasoline and it's less than water. Yeah. People don't believe me. It's like, guys, water is everything. So when I made, my wife calls the money pit, the dam, the spring, I did that so that I always have water. It's spring fit. And I look at that and I think, you know, the day will come. You see these pipelines that we build now all through this country? I bet you in your guys' lifetime, you'll see pipelines going to the U.S. from these big rivers here for communities, just like Las Vegas and communities. And I have the farm magazine sitting right over another table for this month, and it shows in Oregon that reservoir behind that dam, you can see the bottom of it. And nice big houseboats sitting there. They're hardly in any water. They can't get them out of there because it's. And you know, you go all through the, the West, the Southwest of US, I'll tell you what, it's serious. The Okalala Reservoir Underground, what do you call it? It's under three states. And it, it's not charging as fast as the water's being pumped out of it to raise alfalfa or whatever, okay? So a guy punches a well on his place and they're pumping out of the water reservoir. It's not the right word. Mm-hmm. It's like a great big underground lake that's hundreds of miles across and it's in the soil. It's being depleted faster than it's being recharged. And the guy that I watched this program on, he said, in my son's lifetime, we're going to be back to dry land farming. So there's no water. So when he took the farm over from his dad, he was pumping water at 15 feet. It's now down to 75. The aquifer is going dry. And I look at that and I think of this country where we live and I think, you know, who was right? These people that came here from other parts of the world and all they wanted was their dream. They wanted the land. They wanted to build a home. And sometimes it's three and four generations and some have given up, some have moved away. I talked to one old guy in Fairview and he said, when I got to Fairview, he said, when I left Europe, he said, we had roads, we had railroads. So I got to here, he says, like, I went back 50 years. He says, there was no roads, so, you know, you couldn't go anywhere. You were going still horses and buggies. And, you know, like, in 100 years, we've gone from people clearing land with axes to jets landing here every day in 100 years. And I look at it and I think, where are we going to be 100 years from now? That's something I've always found fascinating about the peace country is that it's like you were saying about the homesteading and like the settling part of it, that it happened much later than it happened in other places in North America. And that's right. And so this sort of like you've learned a bunch of stuff from settling the rest of the continent. And now you're settling this tiny corner of the continent with some lessons learned. Yeah. You know, I've had some very unique experiences with some very wonderful people. And this, this one is a real tragedy. Reg Isley, who built fluidic power here and Risley Steel. He is the man that invented the rotosaw, the first mechanical logging system, you know, where it grabs the tree and it cuts it off at the bottom and then it stacks it in the pile. And the limit machine, see all these forestry machines? 
Reg Isley had grade six education and his parents moved out to a homestead. And what he had for school books after that, popular mechanics. His parents would buy him those. He, before his death had, not his death, I mean, that's not the right words. He held already 2,500 patents on things that he'd invented. And one of them was for helicopter and Hughes aircraft. It's now on, bought that patent and it's all on, on every helicopter that's in the air. It is something to do with up at the top. It's just some little thing he made. So I got to know Reg and you know, everybody's different. And he was a pilot and you know, he could make anything out of steel. Do you know that right here in Grand Prairie, he had purchased a machine. It was only one of two in Canada. And, it, and I made these tracks for it and I put them into the floor. So I had to cut this out and, and I did all the concrete for him. And, but I got to know him quite well. And this machine was sitting there and I'm working and he would go over and it would pick up a drill bit and it'd go over at the exact spot and drill a hole, put that bit back, it'd pick up a threading, take it over and thread it. All night long, it would make stuff. It never stopped. It was all computerized. And he told me he could make anything right here in Grand Prairie except an engine because he didn't have a foundry. And I went out to his home and I'm doing this big, well, it was a long sidewalk. And then he had a, like a gazebo out there. Listen to his words. He said, I want it to look nice from the air. He's a pilot. I never had anybody say that to me ever <laughs> before or since. I thought, well, that's, see, it's a different perspective. He liked to fly and he wanted his place to look nice when he flew over. So one day I'm there doing some more work for him. And because I had known him and we had dealings and I guess he trusted me or something. I don't know. Something like that. But anyway, he's building a helicopter in his little private shop, not in town. This is its own place. And he had this aeronautical engineer from Alabama there timing the two turbines that run this helicopter so that they were stroking like identical and you know i'm working i hear this nee, 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 nee. you can hear this helicopter and i go in there and look and it's not like any helicopter you've ever seen you know that helicopter the thing come out with a little propeller on the end doesn't have that it has two sets of chopper blades and they turn opposite to each other one's going clockwise one's going counterclockwise you had a fuel tank over each tire and you sat in it the pilot sat here and the passenger right behind you not side by side it was tiny and i stood there and i thought I'm looking at tomorrow. I'm looking what may be in your guys' lifetime where we kind of follow the roads with something that's on, on the road. It's like a corridor. You know, the day might come when we park our own personal helicopter on our driveway. Do you ever realize that? When we travel through the air? You know, it's not so far-fetched because I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah. What, you want to hear tragedy? That man, with all that ability and that knowledge and the businesses he's built and the people he's employed here, he got dementia. He doesn't even know who he is. And that's sad. He does not know anything. All that ability that we've lost. And, but you know what? He wouldn't let anybody into their back place where they had all of these design things, you know, like they're building brand new equipment and stuff. But he let me. Because he knew I didn't, that didn't mean what it meant to other people. I wasn't there to pirate his knowledge or his, and I, and I, you know, this country's full of people like that, that they have knowledge 
the peace country is a special place because there's people here that have knowledge that does not exist in the rest of the world. And, I, and I'm amazed by that. And, you know, a lot of people, they come here and they go, oh, man, I can't wait to get out of here. And it's like, go, be gone. <laughs> you know, just get out of Dutch. Because <laughs> if you can't be happy here, you're never going to be happy here. And I look at it and I think, you know what? When I die, and I, I don't know when that's going to be, but when I die, I would be just content to be buried here with the pioneers that came here. It's just fine by me. You know? That's how it is. And I, I go about what I'm doing out there. It's my little place there, and I raise cattle. And you know what? Everybody has their own thing. You know, I've always wanted to have a piece of land and have some cattle. You know? And I go out there, and I take the money I have to spend and you know it's not always good and I thought you know I want to buy some good bulls you know I don't have a hundred grand to buy bulls so I went to a sale and the bull I had looked at you know they had them all listed in their catalog and stuff and they run him through the sale first $16,700 and I says to myself self I'm in the wrong place because I don't have that kind of money we had, I needed two bulls and I had $10,000. So 16,000 wasn't going to make it. And you won't believe this. I'm sitting there. And I don't know what was wrong with the rest of them guys in that sale. Cause there was a lot of people there. The full brother of that bull comes through the sale. And I bought him for 4,300 bucks. I thought, well, you cowboys. I have no, that bulls came the same genetics. <laughs> no, I'm not totally stupid here. But, but, you know. So I'm sitting there and I bought the next bull for 5,400 I had spent. Most of my money, I put insurance on them for cost me 480 bucks or whatever. I had just enough money to buy my wife and I a hamburger. Now, I have these bulls in there. I still have them. They're 10 years old now. They still look good. I take my cows to the sale. And, you know, I mean, it's my year's work with the cattle. It's not how I make all of my income. But, it's you know, I, you still want to do good. And the owner and manager of this auction stood up in front of all them people. He said, these are the best cattle in this sale. These are the best cows here. Well, what do you think happened to the price of them? It wasn't the auctioneer that said that. And I mean, if I just stood up and said, guys, these are my best cows sort of thing, it's like, so? So anyway, I've been slowly looking at what I do. If you can be 5% better this year than last year in what you're doing, pretty soon you're, you start gaining, okay? So I build fences, I build dugouts. I work on the facilities, all of those things, genetics, everything. You know, I'll just get it to where I want it to be, and guess what? It's going to be this old guy standing in the mirror, and it's too much work, and it's too hard, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Had I started buying land when I was young, I'd have had all those years to raise cattle. As it is, I started when I was in my 50s, and here I'm in my 70s. Not good, huh? <laughs> I don't know what else there is to tell you. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something else before you go, because this is, this is history. This is really, really history. Now, I don't know if you guys seen this, but eight years ago, seven, six years ago, somewhere in that neighborhood, there was a guy built a replica of a steam paddle wheeler, stern wheeler, that used to go up and down the Peace Rivers here. You think of the Mississippi River, you know, you yeah. see all them the big thing at the back turning. Yeah. They used to have them on the Peace River and they came up the Smoky 
to where the Simonet runs in, and then they came up the hill, and the old Byzantine town site is there. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever went there, but there's still old foundations there. But anyway, I seen that thing down there, and it was all painted and built. And then it disappeared. And I never knew what happened. But in October, I did a job for a guy. He was the guy that built it. And pieces of it were still laying in his yard. And this is the story. He went out. He wanted to build an exact replica of a stern paddle wheeler like it was here. The thing was 100 feet long. Just like you'd think of on the, you see these old shows or photographs of the Missouri, Mississippi River, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Except it didn't have boilers and steam. It had a modern engine and hydraulically and took his, uh, because of the size of this thing. And he was going to have, you know, where you could go and for a ticket, he'd take you up the river for the day and maybe have a lunch and come back. That was his dream. He had it all finished. He went out and he cut down. He went and got, you know, he, he built this himself. He went out and cut down trees. He got a timber permit. He cut down the trees and hauled them to his place and had a little mill set up there. And he sawed this trees into three by 12 planks. You know, these, they're substantial. Yeah. He built all this thing. And he had a guy from Nova Scotia came and taught him how to put the oakum between the planks to seal it. It was all painted white. And one night, some kids went down there were partying there. Whether they did it intentionally or whatever, they caught it on fire and it burned right to the ground. And he had recreated history here that was lost for a hundred years. But I met that guy and I sat at his place and talked to him and he walked around and showed it to me and he told me the struggles he had. And you know that after it was burned, his wife divorced him because he'd spent all their money building it. No insurance. Isn't that sad? Yeah. And, and I uh, I don't know if you have to. Well, I'll tell you one other thing that's it's history here too. When I said about that then Sternwheelers used to come up to the Byzantine Township, the old Byzantine. So last fall, not, not the one past, but the one before and last spring, I did work for Ross Adams on their Buffalo Ranch. Yeah. And it goes right down to the Smoky. And his dad, I had known his dad, Lyle Adams, and he used to have a crane service in Grand Prairie. He had a, a little mobile crane and he run around lifting stuff for people and you know, he got tired and died and gave it up. But Ross went down there and he's he made it a company called Buffalo Gravel. And they, they take the gravel off that one bench of the land and they have a big crusher there and motors. And it's substantial business. Okay. It's not a pretend business. I mean, there's hundreds of loads of gravel water there every day. They crush all winter and in the summer they don't they don't do so much. Spring they don't do, but in the winter they run the crushers. I was building the shop for those loaders and they're huge anyway they have two thousand head of buffalo okay uh -huh. and i took my phone and i'd make videos of the buffalo with their calves and uh you know honestly if there wasn't a fence post in it it's like you step back in time you know the the, the, the buffalo are not like cattle they don't move they kind of grunt think like a pig grunting and they, they kind of go uh, uh. And they're walking along, and then the cows and the birds are all singing like it was like me. 
was really nice out. And you know, it's funny, I didn't notice the birds, but my daughter, I sent her the video and she said, well, the birds sound so nice. And I thought, well, yeah, but it's the buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I went there and I don't know if you down there where you were, if you were exposed to this, but it's been very dry in Western Canada. And when I went there, Ross, that you know, he's not a young guy. He's probably I'm a little older than him, but he's a he's you know he's getting up there. And going to that place, that's just like stepping back in time. Like I'm not kidding you. Like, sure, they got modern balers and tractors and stuff, but if you look the other way, you just can erase a hundred years, just like that. And uh, I'm going up there, and he had the year before put up a lot of hay it was a good year for hay and he had stacks he had thousands of bales of hay there stacked all really well stacked and covered and he said well if we ever had a dry year he said you really and this year i bailed 40 percent on my land and it's better than others i talked to other the hunter rates phoned me and asked me they could bail on my land he said we only got 40 percent on our hay crop what we normally get they have a feedlot i said oh, i need my hay but you see that? See, there's a guy, what I've been saying, who could see tomorrow. And instead of selling that hay, or not even bothering with it, he put it up and stored it. And now, when everybody in this country has been scratching their heads trying to decide what they're going to feed, he didn't have to. He already had it. And Lyle, his dad, and him, they're just... <laughs> you drive to into the ranch, like, it's pretty big, okay? And on the roads, there's picked, not picked, I took pictures of them, but there's steel wheeled tractors, eh? Yeah, yeah. And, and thrashing machines, them old, you know, you think of them gray tin thrashing machines, and old trucks. Like they're parked along the road. I'm not talking one or two, I'm talking like 100. Like he's got to have 30 old tractors on steel rims, eh? And probably at least, at least 20 thrashing machines. And then like you'll have a 1920 pick up there you know and stuff and I, I look at that and I think man so I just like that old stuff you know it was just a totally interesting place to work and you know what when we were done he walks over and just here's your check it's just great and if I have any more you're coming back here and I thought there are some wonderful people in this country yeah they really are they, they they just and you know what they're everywhere and it doesn't matter where you go if if you're wise you can find them and, and they're very honorable people and they pay their bills and they, they have ideas and they, they employ people and they make things happen. You know what I mean? And I just, I don't know if I can say enough about that. Peace country is full of those kind of people, resourceful people. And you know what? There's people here that have failed too. You know, they, they just outright gave up and their lives didn't go anywhere. And, you know, I, I'll tell you something else about some Native people that I met here. One day I met a girl. I was driving to Valley View to do some work, saw cutting or something. I wasn't pressured for time. I was just going there to do some work. So, of course, I'm going right past the reserve. And there was a young girl there. And at that time, she was uh, 14 or 15, just a young girl. And it is cold, like early May, late April. It's cold in the morning. And they just kicked her out of the jail, okay? She said, I was in the drunk tank all night. She said, yeah, I, I got problems. So I said, well, if you want to ride, I'm going right past the reserve. 
I said, do you have any eat? He says, no. He says, are you hungry? He says, yeah. And so we stopped and we ate at the restaurant there on the way. And I took her right to her house. Mm-hmm. And I asked her what her name was. And I want you to listen to this name. This is one of the most beautiful names I've ever heard in my life. Her family's last name is Sunshine. Okay. And they named her Winter. Now, I want you to put them together. And when it's cold and nasty, isn't there something? Like if you get a nice sunny day in the winter, winter sunshine. And you know, she's an older lady now. She's 50s. And I asked people that I, I did some work out there again this year. And I said, do you know her? She said, oh, yeah. I said, oh, someday I should go find her and talk to her again. But you know, she's just a kid. And they threw her out of the jail. She made some mistakes. I'm not saying she, you know, she wasn't perfect. But to see that kid discouraged, I thought, man, what's wrong with us, our society here? You know? And I, I've, I've, because Henry's worked for me for 17 years, and he's treaty, he's Native. And you know, and people, they kind of look down on Native people and like, yeah, Henry's a top hand, you know? You get him to work, you never, ever have to tell him to get a truck and get to work. You get to the job site, he unloads all the tools you need. He works all day. You don't have to tell him anything to do. You don't have to tell him to get work. He puts the stuff in the truck and he's ready to go home. As long as he got in the truck in the morning. But as I learned to work with him, this is what I learned. It can be pouring rain. And everybody else will be sitting in the trucks and Henry will stay right beside me. And, you know, he says to me, you've never failed me in my whole life. And it's like, I've had people say to me, why don't you fire that guy? You know, he doesn't show up again. I said, well, I would have fired him 16 or 17 years ago if I was going to fire him for that. So one, one day he says to me, one guy says, how long you worked here? And he says, oh, I don't know, about 15 years. And then he stops and he gets this kind of funny smile. He says, well, if you count the days, about five. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and uh, we were doing Finning's big building out there. And uh, <laughs> after they moved out of Grand Prairie out to Claremont. And you can see all the great periods. There's a big cloud of white smoke. He says, Henry, what's it say? <laughs> he says, ah, traffic's held us up, but we'll be here in 15 minutes. He says, okay. None of them are guys at work, you know. You, you know, Henry and I, we, we get all fine. Sure enough, 15 minutes later, the truck shows up where he stands and looks at him. And he says, ah, come on, you guys. <laughs> <Give him a break>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I bet you got to go. Yeah, well, I do need to leave now, but we really appreciate Rob. Well, it gives you some ammunition. It really does. Thank you. Okay. It was good talking to you guys. Yeah, it's great to have you on, Rob, and to hear your great stories. They're real. I know. And then I didn't make any of it up. I can tell it all to you again. <laughs> Thanks. It'll happen too. Yeah. Are you smarter than you were? <laughs> I sure am, yeah. Or are you confused? <laughs> nope. I think you have some great stories, Rob. And I always appreciate the time that we had together when I was uh, a deacon and you were my deacon's form advisor and you would tell me stories every Sunday. And they say, man, you know, so many stories. You guys have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, it was really kind of fun. I don't know. So did you talk to him about Emerson Trail and Uh, and how the people came over that way? No. Oh, you didn't even tell him that. No. Maybe we'll have to have another one in months to come. Yeah, we'll have to have you back, Rob. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and then the other one where they came up the river where... Uh, yeah, I talked to about the steamboat, actually. Okay. People are coming up that way. But, you know, other people... And, I mean, you follow your heart, eh? But I came here because I wanted to live here. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm still here. And who knows? Maybe someday I'll get tired of it. But for now... <laughs> You know, maybe I'll get dementia, won't know where I am. She'll pack me off to some other fine place and throw me in a hole in the ground. Well, Rob, we hope that you're still here for a while yet. If you want to email us feedback, ask us questions, or write in a story for us to share, email us at lifenorth of the 54th at gmail.com. Thanks again, Rob, for talking with us, and we hope to see you soon. Mm -hmm.